Hello and welcome to Storehouse 7 Ministries with me, Chris Wickland. I uh, hope you're doing well. I'm sorry that uh, it's, there's been a bit of a delay in this series. We're now on to Revelation chapter 19. I've been away on holiday and doing various other things, so I do apologise. But we're into the last part now, so 19, 20, 21, etc. And we'll get this done. Um, then after this series is finished, what I'll be doing then is spending another two years... Uh, taking this commentary that you've heard and put it into book form and slightly tweaking it and amending it and uh, and then that will come out initially as three separate books and then finally as one big book so uh, that might be of interest to you so let's let's move into it so we're going to look at Revelation 19 and we're going to start with verses 1 to 2 and this is from the New American Standard Bible after these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying hallelujah Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot and was cor- who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants upon her. In Revelation chapter 18, we had a lamentation and dirge over the destruction of Babylon. But here in Revelation 19, the scene shifts from an earthly dirge to a heavenly liturgical flow of praise, worship and victorious triumph. Interestingly, the word hallelujah, which appears in verses 1, 3, 4 and 6 in this chapter, only appear here in the whole New Testament. It appears many times in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament it only appears in Revelation 19. Hallelujah is a Hebrew word which means praise Yah or praise the Lord. In the Greek text it's rendered as Alleluia without the H. So verse 1 of Revelation 19 tells us that a great multitude in heaven cry out Hallelujah. And this shows us that the scene has shifted from those on the earth mourning over Babylon to the heavenly view where the angel and the saints are rejoicing over the destruction and giving ecstatic praise to God for that destruction. Also, the cry of hallelujah was used in um, the ancient Jerusalem temple liturgy known as the Hallel, which means to praise, which was taken from Psalms 104 to 106. 110 to 117, 134 to 135, and 145 through to 150. Within synagogues and Christendom, throughout the last few thousand years, the Hallelujah has been a part of liturgical and private prayers consisting of the aforementioned Psalms. When the multitude in heaven cry out Hallelujah, they also go on to say, Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. These three elements, salvation, glory and power, are a mixture of quotations which also come out of the Psalter. Here are some examples. So Psalm 3 verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be upon your people. Psalm 29 verses 1 to 3, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, worship the Lord in the splendour of holiness. Then in Psalm 68, 28, summon your power, God, show us your strength, our God, as you have done before. Heavenly worship seems to be both ecstatic and highly liturgical. As we look through the book of Revelation, we often, we often see glimpses of strong liturgical worship in heaven mixed with ecstatic, or should I say improvised, prayers of praise and adoration. 
Now this should be something we probably need to be aware of, especially so for Christians who see liturgical prayer and worship as something religious, dry and pointless. It really is none of these things. Liturgical prayer and worship is very meaningful and powerful, but one has to engage with it to see its beauty. Revelation 19.2, because his judgments are true and righteous. This declaration of truth comes from the liturgical Psalter, and here it is Psalm 19 verse 9. These seemingly innocuous quotes from the Psalms and various Old Testament canticles show us how scripture is often used in the heavenly worship services. Throughout history, the Catholic, Orthodox and the Anglican churches have taken those same canticles and used them with others to form major aspects to their liturgical worship throughout the year. Why is this important, you're probably asking? Because the church on the earth has historically been trying to imitate the heavenly pattern and has done so for 2,000 years. This isn't dead religion as some suppose, rather it is the church on the earth joining in with the church in heaven so that there may be harmony and unison between heaven and earth and thus fulfill the Lord's prayer. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Revelation 19.2, we see why God judged the great harlot. <clears throat> Firstly, because it was corrupting the whole earth with her filth, immorality and false religion, wickedness and debauchery. And secondly, God wanted to avenge the blood of his bondservants, i.e. all the saints that are being martyred by her. The phrase, he, God, has avenged the blood of his bondservants is a requote from the book of Deuteronomy 32 verse 43. Here is the full quote from Deuteronomy. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. So here yet again, we see another example of where scripture is being quoted in heaven in response to praise, worship and adoration of God. In fact, if you have a Bible which capitalizes or puts in bold print all the Old Testament references um, in the book of Revelation, you'll be shocked just how many times the Old Testament is actually referenced. And it comes to just about 400 references. Uh, Revelation 19.3. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever. And here we have the second of the four hallelujahs of this passage. Uh, see my comment on this verse in verse on this concept in verse one. The phrase her smoke rises up forever is also a requote from Isaiah 34 verse 10. Here is the full quote. So it's Isaiah 34 verses eight to 10. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its streams will be turned into pitch. It will not be quenched day or night. Its smoke will go up forever. From generation to generation, it will be desolate and none will pass through it forever and ever. Here we see a more complete picture of the destruction of Babylon. Not only will it be utterly destroyed, it will always burn in fire because of all the pitch and tar pits that will continually burn. The smoke from burning Babylon will continually rise before the Lord. 
Now, you may or may not know this, but the phrase of smoke continually coming up before the Lord is a significant one as it parallels the burnt offering as spoken of in Leviticus chapters 1 and 6. And this offering was known as the burnt offering or also known as the ascending offering due to the smoke that would rise up to God and would be a sweet smell to him. This burnt offering was offered first thing in the morning and last thing at night. This smoke of the covenants would continually rise before the Lord. Here in Revelation 19, we get the same language and picture. Babylon becomes a continual burnt offering, which rises before the Lord as a sweet fragrance of God's justice upon wickedness and retribution because of the blood of the saints who were martyred in that place. It will also burn as a perpetual reminder to all the nations in the millennial reign not to rebel against God and his saints, lest they too face a similar fate. Uh, some may think, well, surely everyone in the millennial reign will be saved, etc. Um, that's not necessarily true. Um, there are various references. For example, I think it's in Zechariah, I'm just saying this off the top of my head, where it says that those nations that don't come up to observe, I think it's the Feast of Tabernacles, um, those nations will be judged by God or plagued by God to make sure that they do come. So in that time when Jesus is ruling and reigning over the earth, there will still be nations that will, that will want to rebel against God. And this is backed up by Psalm 2, why the nation's in uproar. And this is also borne out true because with the final Gog-Magog war, which happens near the end of the book of Revelation, where it says all the nations come against Jerusalem, etc. So it is quite clear that in those days, <coughs> not everyone will be happy that Jesus is ruling and reigning. Revelation 19 verses 4 to 5 and the heavenly sorry and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying amen hallelujah and a voice came from the throne saying give praise to our God all you his bond servants you who fear him the small and the great for more information regarding the 24 elders and the four living creatures, please read or listen to my commentary on chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation. The 24 elders and four living creatures all bow down before God who is seated upon the throne. And here we see a picture of God's power, dominion and sovereignty. God is the King of Kings, the Lord of all, and he has dominion over all. He is justice and righteousness. Revelation 19.5 and a voice from the throne saying give praise to our God all you his bondservants you who fear him the small and the great. Now verse 5 is a very interesting verse for it reveals some interesting theology. Firstly we hear a voice coming from the throne. We're not sure if this is the father's throne or the throne at the right hand of the father which belongs to God the son Jesus. However because the language is uh, inviting the saints and angels to praise our God, it likely stands the to reason that it is Jesus who is saying these words. So we hope. <laughs> Some may question why Jesus, who is very God himself, would call his father God. <clears throat> well, because simply put, that is how Jesus has always seen his father and scripture testifies to this. Um, if you didn't quite understand that, sometimes Jesus calls his father God. And so does that therefore mean Jesus isn't God because he calls his father God? Okay, which has often been uh, an objection to Jesus being fully divine. 
Well, let's look at this. Matthew 27 verse 46 says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So there he says, my God, my God. So here at the cross, Jesus calls out to his father as God. However, in this next reading, we see Jesus being called God and his father being called his God. Hebrews 1, 8 to 9. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. So here we clearly see that Jesus is God, but whom also addresses his own father as God as well. This is important to know because the argument that Jesus isn't God because he dresses his father as God is actually a null and void point. The scriptures clearly testify to Jesus' divinity and his sonship. As the father is eternally the father, and he's also God, so is the Son in his likeness eternally, the Son and also God. Don't make this complicated. Yes, the Trinity is a mystery, but the concept of the Blessed Trinity is simple enough to understand to a point, and then it turns back into a mystery. But we will have all eternity to meditate and to comprehend these mysteries and these things when we finally see him face to face. So in the meantime, keep it simple, but also marvel in the wonder of him. Revelation 19 verse 5 and a voice from the throne saying give praise to our God all you his bondservants you who fear him the small and the great. The next thing uh, which this passage highlights is the term bondservant. Now many Christians in today's Christianity and this is now the year 2022 object to being called servants of God because they state that they're not servants but sons and daughters. (laughs) The trouble with us Christians is that we seem unable to hold two truths in tension, i.e. two things can be both true at the same time, i.e. Jesus, for example, the hypostatic union, one God, but also fully human. He is fully God and fully human, not one or the other and not a hybrid mix, for if he was a hybrid mix, then he's neither God nor human. Scriptures testify that we are bond slaves, i.e. people in chains and sons and daughters. It's not either or, it's both. We are slaves to righteousness. See Romans 6, 15 to 23, to the word of God and to his service. But we're also sons and daughters who will one day at the resurrection co-rule and become co-heirs with Christ. So we as Christians live in the kingdom now, but also not yet. We are not yet in the fullness of God's kingdom. And so at this time, we're still slaves, but also sons and daughters. So we live in a place of tension, yearning and expectation. The next part of Revelation 19.5 says, You who fear him, the small and the great. Here we have yet another important doctrinal point, the fear of the Lord. For a believer, the fear of the Lord is not about terror and dread of God. Rather, it is a beautiful awe, fear, respect and honour of him. Or should I say, a beautiful awe, fearful respect and honour of him. It's simply about being a people who put him first and honour his teachings by living them. 
The fear of the Lord is both the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Proverbs 9.10, Proverbs 1.7. If our lives, our knowledge, our understanding of the world doesn't start with, in the beginning, God, then our ways are flawed and prone to great error. If, for example, our understanding of science does not start from the premise, in the beginning, God, then our science will be prone to serious error. This, of course, does not just apply to science, but to all knowledge and to all aspects of living. Placing God at the heart of all life and understanding is truly the fear of the Lord. And Revelation 19.5 ends with the phrase, the small and the great. Now, although all children of God are equal in God's eyes, there will be many who will be great in God's kingdom. (laughs) Now, being great does not uh, necessarily mean great in fame, rather great in piety and great in heavenly rewards because of how they lived their lives on the earth. In the Catholic and Orthodox tradition, the laity are encouraged to live lives to become as saints. Now, technically, we we are all saints and we know that, but some people in history become saints, i.e. saints with a capital S, by their wonderful life, devotion to God, and, uh, and they become people Um, and they're just a really wonderful, pious people, and their degree of personal holiness and piety is so noted that they become noted people of history. Now, you don't have to have a great name or a following to be a saint. In fact, heaven will likely be full of great saints who lived seemingly unremarkable lives, as far as the world is concerned, but they were a people who went beyond the normal in love and life for their God. And maybe that should encourage us to pursue a greater form of excellence in our own life, that we too can make ourselves great in the kingdom of heaven, that we too can make ourselves vessels of noble worth, not ignoble worth. And the, at the end of the day, it comes down to us whether we really want to pursue God, pursue him in a life of prayer, piety, holiness, and good works to our fellow man. Anyway, that concludes today, and uh, hopefully I'll give you some more Revelation chapter 19 uh, next week. I'm really enjoying this period of, of this commentary because it's not doom and gloom now. It's now moving into you know the fullness of God's kingdom being manifested on the earth. So I know Revelation did get heavy for a bit with the whole whore of Babylon thing, uh, but now we're moving into the good stuff, coming into the wedding feast of the Lamb and things like that. Well, God bless you, and I'll speak to you again soon. Bye-bye.